I don't know how you read the scriptures when you have your own quiet time, but I've kind of changed my process a little bit. I used to kind of read through the scriptures. I try to get my chapter done. Probably says something about who I am. And if the scripture seemed kind of awkward, I didn't understand it, well, I would continue to move on until I found a piece I understood. Then I'd kind of relish that a little bit and have my time. Well, in the last couple of months, I've tried to change that process a little bit because I don't know for you, but for me, almost every scripture I read, if it's a whole chapter especially, there's something there I don't understand. And I got to struggle with it. And so I've been reading a little bit less, but spending more time trying to figure out what, did, what is that part that doesn't make sense? What's it really intended to say? There's, there's probably a kernel in there I should be working for. And I've been working harder at that. And uh, it takes multiple readings, some you know, focused attention, often for me a commentary or two. And it's enriched me a little that way. So I'd encourage you, if you were like, I, let's get through this chapter and I, I can relish those parts I understand and just kind of reaffirm those. And those are important things to do. I'm not suggesting it's not important to reaffirm that which we know is truth. But to dwell on some of those pieces that seem kind of bizarre, under, incomprehensible at first reading. Well, what Sharon just read to me was that category. You know, I've read a lot of that stuff. Some of that stuff makes a lot of sense. And some of it didn't make much sense at all as I started this process. So we're going to kind of work through that. Well, let's pray first. Father God, you, through your spirit, inspired all scripture that we believe and we affirm. And you, through your Holy Spirit, speaks to us. And we affirm that as well. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, you who inspired these words, would speak to us who are receiving these words. We might understand what you're saying, that you might change our hearts, you might change our lives. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> you know, Paul starts out with these words. He says, we ourselves. He might say, well, who's we and who's ourselves? Well, that goes back to actually the two last two sermons that Darren's preached to us. You'll read in those verses a little above, the paragraph above, he talks about Peter, and of course it's Paul who's writing this, and Barnabas. There's three, three people mentioned. So it must include them. And uh, what did they well, we know who they are, and we know what they believe, because it says, <clears throat> we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. The three of them must have believed that, uh, which gives a little credence, I think, to the material that Darren talked about and, and Don Carson's perspective of why did Peter vacillate on eating with the Gentiles? And it could be that he was just scared of the, of the Jewish uh, authorities and the Judaizing Christians, but... Maybe it was because by being a little softer there, the Christian Jews might have a better time with the non-Christian Jews, especially in Jerusalem, but notwithstanding. Um, in any event, we see he, here Paul is saying that he and Peter, and, and to a lesser extent Barnabas, all agreed that the justification doesn't come from my works from the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, they both Notice the word, they know this. This is not a thought. This is not a, uh, a possibility, but they have assurance and they know it. And they, they're on the same page. They're together on this. They agree on this, which is a pretty fundamental truth, uh, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Now, he also says, he notes, notes there, he says, we're not like those Gentile um, 
heathen Gentiles, the Gentile sinners. He's saying, we are card-carrying Jews. We were raised Jews. We were raised Jews by birth, is his word there. Uh, Paul especially was as Jewish as he can be. He was trained by the very reputable and well-known Gamaliel, a, a, a rabbi who was in the Sanhedrin itself. And Paul, by all his works, evidenced the uh, faith of the Jews. And Peter, born a Jew, lived a Jew. Um, they were not Gentile sinners. Now, the Gentile sinners is a, basically, it's a uh, derogatory term, I guess I would describe it, uh, because for the, the, especially the Jewish worshipers, to be a Gentile sinner was the opposite of a true Jew. Those who were in the covenant of Abraham were the Jews, and to them were given the law and all the special revelation of God. But those Gentiles out there, they had no idea what was going on. They were the lost. They were the heathen. They were the unclean. They were those pork eaters. They were those fornicating Jewish sinners, or Gentile sinners. And it, clearly it was derogatory, but pretty descriptive. When you're a Gentile sinner, they, you knew what you were being called. And, but Paul, in saying, we and Peter are not anything like that. We were raised by birth as Jews. And yet we know that a person is saved by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law. He's saying, you can't just disregard us because we are Gentiles or something. We're part of your family. We're part of the Abrahamic uh, covenant. And we know this is true. So don't walk us, write us off as weird or strange or unusual. Listen to what we're saying. They agreed and they knew that they were not justified by works of the law. Now, I'm saying these words a lot, but you'll see in, in verse 16, he talks about being justified three times. Verse 17, he talks about being justified again. There's a lot about justification here. You know, you kind of wonder, why did Peter, who knows this, that you're justified by works of the law, why did he then have this inconsistency we talked about the last couple of weeks? Why did he decide he better not eat with Gentiles when the Jews came to uh, the city they were in. Well, it, it could be, yes, that by saying this, he wanted to protect the Jewish Christians, especially those in Jerusalem. That's what might be the reason. But you know, Paul saw that as racial bigotry. He said that that racial bigotry is, quote, not in step with the truth of the gospel in verse 14. It's a pretty strong word. And you know, think about Paul, who's, Mission is primary to the Jews. Uh, to the Gentiles, excuse me, thank you. But the Jewish ceremonial laws would be a problem for, for the Jews, or for the Gentiles, I get this straight. Uh, most Gentiles were not looking forward to being called Jews. You know, this, these were foreigners. For the Gentiles, the Jews were just a small sect that were kind of on the deep end of something. And that wasn't what they, their goal was not to be Jews. And to have to follow all the Old Testament rules of feast and fast days and all this would seem to be an impediment at best. But worst, circumcision, which was the foundation of the law, was a profound problem for Gentile males. And Paul saw that there was no reason to have this showstopper problem in front of all the Gentiles he's trying to share the gospel with. 
They didn't need to do this to be real Christians was Paul's perspective. But you know, you think about this. You've got Peter who's really concerned about the Jews and the Jewish Christians. And Paul's really concerned about the Gentiles and the Gentile Christians. I think there's some great balance here. There's some, there's some really good thing we've seen here as the church was willing to hear both sides of the needs and come out with a final answer that we are not being, you, no one is justified by works of the law. And that was the fun, final. That's where Peter stood. That's where Barnabas stood. And that's where Paul stood. And that's, I can't believe where we stand. Uh, now, if we look at verse 16, I mentioned all that repetition of justification. We see that three times. Faith, we hear twice. Uh, we see a contrast of uh, the belief and faith and the works of the law. Well, we know what the word justification, many of us do probably know what the word justification means. I learned that a long time ago. It means to be put right with God. <clears throat> and that's a great biblical definition. But I'd like to maybe dig into it a little deeper. If... Uh, Paul's willing to talk about this four times in two verses. Maybe we should spend a little more time on it as well. To begin with, I think justification often gets confused with being innocent. Uh, justification does not ever claim that we did not sin. In fact, it's really the reverse. You don't need justification unless there was some sin there. <clears throat> in preparation, I heard a hypothetical uh, example that uh, Tim Keller used. I've kind of doctored it up to get it more hypothetical and maybe more, more fun to listen to, but here we go. Uh, imagine a busy high school. You know, lots of, and the halls are, and it's between classes, the bell's just rung, and they're running from one class to the other. But it's full, and we got two players here we're going to talk about. Sluggo, I don't know if anybody used to remember the old, it was a cartoon on Sunday, Sunday cartoons. It was Sluggo, Nancy and Sluggo. You remember that, Roman? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, and a couple of older folks remember this. Well, it was kind of a fun one. You don't know? Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just the older folks like me. Uh, well, anyhow, Nan Sluggo was the, uh, the hero of this story. The heroine was, was Nancy in this comic strip. Well, we, so we have a Sluggo in this, our, this high school, and he's coming down the hall. And then we also have a, here's another name, we're going to have a Sluggy. Now, you might get a clue what's going to happen now. Uh, well, Sluggo's coming down the hall, and he sees Sluggy, and all of a sudden, Sluggo has a tremendous slug, and Sluggy is down. Well, in this story, the, the principal, bad timing, just come around the corner and sees this smash across the face, and Sluggo, Sluggy's down, and Sluggo's standing there, and the principal rushes over to Sluggy, looking at Sluggo, and says, what are you doing? You're going to be expelled, young man, and they get over, and the Kids begin to mill around. The teachers come out, and the principal tells one teacher, call 911 and call the police, and it's really intense. The teacher's trying to move space for Sluggy so he can get some air, and Sluggo's sitting there pretty calmly. And Sluggo says, sir, would you look in the Sluggy's pocket? Well, his Sluggy still had his hand in his pocket down on the floor. And so the principal pulls his hands out, puts in hands in the pocket and pulls out a revolver, an automatic revolver. And he said, what happened? And Sluggo said, well, just a few seconds ago, I saw Sluggy pull this gun out. And I, when I came over to him, he put his hands back in his pocket. I said, what are you doing with that gun? And he started to pull it out again, and I slugged him. He was out for the count of 10. Now, 
what happened here? Was there what was thought to be sin in this great smash was actually a courageous act. Sluggo justified himself. The principal was going to expel him at best. I don't know if cops come around. It could be other things, juvenile court. Who knows what would happen? And Sluggo needed a justification for what was thought to be sin, and he had a justification. Now, if there had been no justification, what would Sluggo experience? He would experience the consequences of the law, the consequences of the school, and be apparently at least expulsion. Well, that's kind of an interesting example for us. I hope it'll be helpful to us. Justification does not declare we're innocent. Sluggo had no chance to argue he never hit Sluggy. It was obvious. People saw it. Justification doesn't miraculously change or transform what we've said or done. It, is, it re- recognizes the act or attitude that was done or said or displayed. It's somehow making the case that what was done was either right, like Sluggo. He made a case. What I did was absolutely right. There was no sin here. Or something has to be done to make it right. Or we suffer the consequences of the action, the word, or deed. In our hypothetical case, Sluggo argued successfully that what he had done was not right. There was no sin here. Therefore, there was really no need for forgiveness or something. So if our actions are really righteous, We've not sinned and we don't need justification. But the challenge is, though, when we do sin, how do we become justified? You know, ages ago, the first book, in fact, we actually did this in, in, our, in church not too long ago. We studied the book of Job. There's a guy, one of the friends, of, quote, friends of Job, was called Bildad. He was a Shuite. In chapter 25, he says, how can a man be made righteous in the sight of God? That is a great question that has survived the centuries, the millennia of time. And as we know from Romans, all have sinned and I'm sure the glory of God. So it really applies to everybody for all. We all are in need of justification for our sins. Or the choice is we are subject to the consequences of them. That's That's the kind of two we have. But even if we said or something done something wrong or expressed a bad attitude, we often claim we didn't really sin. And there is no need for justification. If there's no sin, there's no justification necessary. So sadly, that's often our first response to sin. We try to convince ourselves, and especially others, that what we thought or they thought was sin was not really sin. Of course, that doesn't deal with the sin itself. The sin itself continues. It is really just trying to hide that sin, ignore it, or cover it up. But our consciences, consciences, if they've not been too severely seared, inside we know the truth and that we know that we're trying to live a little bit of a lie. We may try to kid ourselves, and actually we may be successful in kidding everybody else and fooling them, but deep in our spirit we know that God is not fooled. And that hidden deed is only getting more foul each day and it's smelling more as it rots. 
like mold on a piece of cheese, it doesn't get prettier, it doesn't taste better over time. And a couple weeks ago, a little personal experience here, we got it, Sue and I got a, a, a Toyota camera. It was new to us. Um, and I had first time to change oil on it. So I put it on the ramp, started pulling. I finally didn't have quite the right tool, but I jury-rigged this thing. I got the, the uh, oil out and took off the filter and put it back together again. I was pretty happy about that. Well, two days later, we're driving, and Sue said, what's that smell? I've been smelling it all the time. There's this, this, this car's leaking fumes. We actually had our old car. I had that problem often. So I said, oh, no, I got a new car. I got a, the same problem. So then two days later, she said, you know, there's some spots in our driveway. Oh, no, I thought. So we both thought, think, ah, I guess didn't have the right tools for that uh, change. I was going to set I need to get one more tool. It would be a lot easier. So I said, I'll take it back on the ramps. I put it back on the ramps, got underneath there, and to my surprise, I couldn't tighten that. Bolt was in there just like it's supposed to. The filter was in there just like I couldn't tighten it anymore. So I raised the hood, and oh, my goodness. There is the filler tube without a cap on it. I've been driving for a week with the filler tube open, and uh, <clears throat> God was good. The cap was right there where it should have been, right beside it. <laughs> so I put the cap back on quickly, shut the hood down, take it off the ramps, and thought, I might be okay here. It was because I, obviously because my, I didn't have the right wrench. I didn't get it tight enough, and we, but I thought, that's not going to really work. She's going to ask something about this. I can't lie. I, I wanted to bury my stupidity. Um, thought Sue might never know. That was, and she just think it was the plug that wouldn't, couldn't quite bring down quite tightly enough. Uh, and then I wouldn't have to have her remind me to be more thorough <laughs> again. <laughs> But in this case, I swallowed my pride. I told her the story, and she said, you need to be more thorough. <laughs> I always check when I'm done, and you don't very often check when you're done. Uh, but I had cut off the mold from the cheese, and our relationship really wasn't fouled up. It was, I, got a, I got a reminder, which was appropriate. Or perhaps we do recognize our, their action is sinful and realize there's no chance of hiding it. We know we sin, we know we're not innocent, and we can't fool somebody else. So, we're not done. There's two ways that we can try to get our, justify ourselves. First way, minimize the damage that was done. And two, compensate for the damage that was done. For instance, this is, happens too often. I get stressed because I'm working this job and it's often mechanical and something won't come off and I get frustrated and usually get a broken knuckle or uh, you know, blood on the knuckle trying to get it done. And that doesn't make me happy. So I tend to begin to get angry. And I can express my anger in a couple ways. I can either be very short with Sue. Uh, <clears throat> we live together. There's no more kids anymore, so she usually gets it all. Uh, or I can ignore her. Neither option is a very good one, let me tell you that. Um, when I express that act, anger, I usually don't express it right at her. I express it, my favorite one is, I guess it's my favorite one, my most common one, I guess, you would tell me, is that when I'm going down the, the, the traffic and I get three red lights in a row, I say, who's designed the timing of these lights? <laughs> Those stupid lights. Or I get short with her 
and say something I didn't want to say, or very frequently, I talk to this imagined, inanimate bolt that won't come off and said, would you please come on and be helpful? And that doesn't help the bolt or me anymore either. Well, eventually Sue will confront me. That happens very frequently. Or less frequently but more painfully, she just begins to walk further and further away from me. And when she gets about this far, I recognize something's wrong. And it's been wrong for quite a while. Uh, and we've got a time of recovery. Uh, now, if I'm smart, I don't do this, but too often it's happened this way. I, trend, I try to downplay my bad behavior, my words I've said that I shouldn't have said, or my uh, distance from her. I argue that, well, the reason it's happened, that task was especially difficult. I have reason to be angry. I scratched my hand. Or I say, you know I love you. We've been married 51 years. How can you say I don't care for you? Uh, those aren't really very helpful in our relationship either. What I'm doing, I'm trying to justify my behavior. That's really what I'm doing. I'm saying it really wasn't that bad. Don't get excited about that. I'm minimizing my anger. I'm minimizing my immature behavior. And one I don't use very often, but I have used, is trying to compensate. I'll say, you know, I know it's been a week. I have, we haven't had much time together at all. But next week, we're, we're going to see the kids in Missouri, or we're going to take a camping trip, or we're going to do something special. So give me, give me some slack now, because we're going to do it better in the future. And, you know, sometimes it actually helps a little bit. Uh, but I'm trying to justify my behavior by doing something better in the future. But you know, it sometimes works with Sue. Often it doesn't. But it never works with God. It never works with God. Paul says in Romans 4, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is our first point. We cannot work, we cannot do something, we cannot say something to justify ourselves before God. Only he justifies you know, we can't convince God that our sin is not all that bad, that our, uh, that our circumstances made me do it, or the devil made me do it, or God, I'll make it up to you later. Only admitting that we sinned and need his gift of salvation, we need his forgiveness and life in Christ brings justification. We are not innocent. We never have been innocent. We never shall be innocent, and we have no rights or claims to God's mercy. Only admitting that we're sinners, have sinned and need his forgiveness and life through Christ brings justification. Yes, justification is clearly and only a gift, it's not a right. Now, in human affairs, good works may help or build or restore relationships. But, you know, even in human relationships, an offense that hasn't been dealt with or recognized often torpedoes the opportunity to build on that relationship. Often we've got to clear it up if we're going to get things going in the future. But again, in God's world, it doesn't work at all. Three times in verse 16, we read that we're not justified with God by our good works. Three times he hits it. <clears throat> being good or becoming good is not the essence of being a Christian. We respond by faith to God in Christ. God accepts us 
He sees us as righteous, even when we're still in our sins. It's a gift to us while we're sinners. Jesus' righteousness is not imputed to us or counted to us or attributed to us when we grow in our sanctification. It's given to us when we're still in our sins. Justification transfers the consequences of our sins from us to Jesus. It transfers the righteousness of Jesus to us. We're guilty of our sins, but the penalty of our sins is charged to Christ. Our sins are not ignored. They're not forgotten in some sense that he can just not care about them. But the consequences of them is paid by Jesus' death. We'll be celebrating communion shortly. And that's the thing we're remembering. That's the, that's the core of what communion is about. Jesus gives us his robe of righteousness and takes our filthy rags to the cross. We should naturally be grateful and joyous. So Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as the bride adorns herself with jewels. When we respond to Christ and the Spirit's conviction of sin by admitting and confessing our sins and accepting God's gift of forgiveness and life through faith, we experience true, lasting justification. We are made right with God then. You know, the sin and dirt of our lives are covered by the robe of righteousness of Jesus, by his blood. When he looks down upon his forgiven children, he sees the purity of Jesus. Our sins are not undone. I can't undo them. Jesus doesn't even undo them. Sluggo was guilty of smashing into Sluggy's face. He couldn't change what happened. He needed justification. In his case, he justified himself. But unlike that hypothetical example, we have no story. We have no narrative. We have no rabbit we can pull out of the hat that's going to justify our sins. Only recognizing we're rebellious to God and asking to be forgiven can we be reconciled and justified. Now, you might begin to think, well, maybe I don't have all that many more sins. I, I, you know, the Pharisees believed if they worked hard, they wouldn't have sin. And I just think of the verses that uh, Sharon read. Who can love the Lord with all his heart and mind and strength and love his neighbor as, ourself, as himself? That just strikes me. I, I don't do either one of those. Those are well beyond my capability. Only through the Spirit do I have any hope to do that. We are sinners. We need Jesus. We need his forgiveness. We need the Holy Spirit. We can't talk our way out of the predicaments. We can't do anything to redeem ourselves. All we can do is grasp the one who loves us and died for us. All we can do is follow this God-man who promises us eternal life and has given us his Holy Spirit to abide in us so we might have a rich, abundant life on earth. We can believe in him. We can have faith in him. Let's take this slower. What is faith itself? Yes, it's believing and trusting our lives on Jesus, but the word technically, faith, is the instrumental cause of our justification. It's not faith that justifies us. Jesus Christ justifies us. 
But faith is the hand that grasps him who justifies us. I ran across this quote. I just want to share it with you. Soon I have at least 12 fruit trees at our house, and this kind of is meaningful, and it's so beautiful. <clears throat> Her Majesty's 19th century botanist, that goes all the way back, folks, described faith this way. As the graft, and for those who know what a graft is, we'll talk about it. As a graft, a new small branch that's kept in stock, in it's put in stock in union with the stock. You cut it and you put a little branch inside of a bigger branch. That's the mature tree. So as the graft is kept in union with the stock by means of the clay, in those days they put clay on it, kind of a cementy kind of stuff, by means of the clay which has been applied by the gardener, so is the believer united to Christ by faith, which is the gift of God. The clay cement keeps the parts together, but the clay cement has no virtue in itself. So faith is the means of union with Christ. It shows that the husbandman has been there. When the clay is removed in an ordinary tree, the graft is found united to the stock. So when faith is swallowed up in sight, then the perfect union of Christ and his people is seen. You know, John 15, 1, Jesus is the vine, and in the King James, where I learned it, and God is the husbandman. The husbandman is there. He's united us to Christ. And faith is the means of union. The union with the one who saves. The Savior is Jesus, not faith. Now, one can have faith in all sorts of things, in all sorts of people. We can have faith in our abilities and our strengths and our goodness. We can have faith in Buddha or science or wealth. We can believe that these or a thousand other things can save us. But faith in itself, doesn't save. Jesus is the Savior. Faith doesn't save, but the object of our faith, you have to ask, is the object of our, our faith something or someone who saves? And Jesus is the object of our faith, and he saves. The other things don't save. This is our second point. God doesn't ignore sin, but justifies us by placing our sin and penalty on Jesus when we have faith in him when we're cemented to him, when we grasp him tightly. This is the truth of the gospel. Martin Luther called it the principal article of all Christian doctrine. But we need to move on. Verse 17 is, well, I thought, a pretty tricky verse. It uh, could be understood in at least a couple of different ways. Perhaps the most straightforward way is to understand it this way. Paul is saying to, Judaiz to the Judaizing Christians, if after Peter and I, who believe that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. After all we've trusted in Christ, we remain unforgiven in God's eyes because you say we have to follow the Jewish ceremonial laws as well. Then you're saying Christ is an agent of sin because he must have fooled us. He didn't save us after all. If we have to trust him and do the law and we're not doing the law, then we must still be sinners. And Christ didn't really save us. Indeed, the Judaizing Christians must have, art, must have seen that Peter and Paul must have seen them as unjustified sinners since they were no longer following the ceremonial laws as Judaizing Christians said they must do. In a clearest expression, John Piper. <clears throat> now, in verse 17, we hear the echo of an argument that the Judaizers, or the men from James, probably used against Paul. They probably said, by encouraging Jews to neglect the laws of God, the ones that Peter neglected when he ate with the Gentiles, 
and thus act like Gentile sinners. You're making Christ the agent of sin. Paul answers in verse 17. But if our endeavor is to be justified in Christ, we are still found to be sinners. Is Christ then an agent of sin? Certainly not. He, Paul, is admitting first that he and Peter and other Jewish Christians are seeking justification not in the works of the law, but only in Christ. And he's admitting, secondly, that in doing so, they are called sinners by the Judaizers. Why are they called sinners? Because they didn't, they're not following the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws of food regulations, of holidays and calendar activities. Paul's saying to the Judaizers, <clears throat> you call yourself Christians, yet you insist upon the Mosaic law. You say that man cannot be justified without it. It follows that we who have been exchanged the service of the law for the service of Christ are not justified. In other words, our relationships to Christ has made us not better, but worse. See, this can't be. But would, that, would make God's, that would make Jesus supporting sinful behavior and Paul's shouting, that's preposterous. God forbid, certainly not. That would be completely inconsistent with what he's been teaching and preaching for decades already. Paul had torn down the arguments that you needed Jesus as your Savior and special behavior, special feast days and special laws of eating, and especially circumcision. Why? Because he's repeated three times, now four times, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, he's hitting this. It's like hitting a nail. And again and again and again. It's under the wood by now. The law was made to show us that we need a Savior. It's not the Savior. God never intended it to be so, even though the Judaizers and Christians kind of saw it that way. Back to Piper. Not following the works of the law is not sin. It's not a sin to be a sinner in that sense. It's not a sin to free yourself from the ceremonial Jewish laws in order to walk in love toward Christians, Gentile Christians. It's not sin to stop depending on works. Christ is not the agent of sin. He's the agent of freedom. Freedom for, for God, freedom for love. That's Paul's answer to the Judaizers. Yes, Christ frees us from the works of the law. No, he's not thereby an agent of sin. You know, there's a second way to read these verses, though. I think it's a little more generous view of the Judaizing Christians. It suggests that they were pushing the ceremonial law and the moral law because they were concerned without the guardrails of the law. Simple trust in Christ would lead, lead to licentious living, would lead to gross sins that would reflect poorly upon God. Perhaps they were thinking that if Christianity became an eat, drink, be merry, and then ask for forgiveness that that would look like a sham. If Christians can plead justification for Christ and then leave on in a life of willful, open disobedience, then coming to faith could be argued to be an avenue for more sin. So verse, in verse 17, this would suggest if one endeavors to come to Christ for justification but consent continues or reverts to being a Gentile sinner, that is, a gross, open, rebellious sinner, then Christ could be seen as supporting sin, of countenancing sin. Sometimes you might hear this as believe in God and do whatever you want to do. This charge is known as antinomianism. It's a freedom, it's basically an argument that Christ's freedom, will live, uh, we need to have laws. Uh, let's try this again. The charge against Christian freedom leading to moral license is called antinomianism, sorry. 
Literally, it means against the law. It's clear that Paul in this passage preaches that no one's justified by works of law. You should hear that several times, either ceremonial or moral. It's true because no one can keep those laws. And we know clearly Christ did away with the ceremonial laws of, of eating. We saw the, uh, the sheet come down in, when Paul was at Joppa, and, or when Peter was at Joppa, and he said, eat all of it. And Peter objected, but Christ told him, the Holy Spirit told him that it's not uh, objectionable. And that dietary laws don't save us. And but we know Christians, we still believe in the moral laws, the natural laws. Not that they save us, but that we should follow them. Now, that's kind of tricky. That's always something I learned here. <clears throat> I found R.C. Sproul very helpful. He said, moral laws are an expression of God's or his own character. That's immutable. So that if he set himself against those laws, he would be doing violence to his own character. For example, if Christ, God would say, now in the new covenant, it's okay to worship idols. God would be denying his own deity and supremacy at that point. But when we talk about or purposive laws, we say the laws of God gave for a specific historical purpose, preparing for the world for the fulfillment of those purposive laws in the work of Christ. Now, try it again. The ceremonial laws were purposive for the Jews. Sproul is arguing that these ceremonial laws don't reflect God's character at all. I mean, what food you eat doesn't talk about God. But they were designed by the Jews to give them identity and to prepare them for the time when the Messiah would come, when Christ would come. But they're no longer required, and believers are free from them, notwithstanding what the Judaizers and Christians were saying. But Paul actually addresses this issue a little differently in, in Romans. In Romans 6, in, in chapter 5, and verse, in chapter, starting in chapter, chapter 6, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Sounds, sounds interesting. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Yes, God gave the law so that people would see sin, would know sin. In that respect, this, the sins were more obvious. They increased. But Paul is saying here that where sin increased, his grace was even more abundant. But he's also saying that doesn't mean we should sin so we can see more abundance of God's grace. Holy cow, that wouldn't work. God gave the law which showed people their sin, yes, but he doesn't expect them to continue in sin that they might see more grace. Or in Paul's word, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or as I memorized the verse from my first time, God forbid that. That's crazy. We die to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Again, the law was given so we might need, know we have a need for a Savior. We would see our sin and respond to God. Proof, true Christians don't sin that they might receive more grace. No, but from a sense of gratitude for the grace we have, for a desire to please the one who died for us and loves us, and has redeemed us. We want to honor God by following his commandments. We want to follow the Ten Commandments. You know, Paul is right. The Judaizing Christians may be concerned about licentious, uh, gross behavior of Christians, but those people who live in gross sin after they've become, quote, saved, they continue in that and don't respond. They are not Christians. I think that's what Paul's saying. 
James said it this way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by any works, is dead. Any godly works, no godly works in there, it's dead. So we need to question those who might be arguing that they're still Christians but are living grossly. How can professing Christians who do not, how can they not care if they please God or displease God? If they honor their Savior or dishonor Him? If they live consistent with God's character or inconsistent with His character? Christ is never an agent of sin. To encourage sin in any way is diametrically opposed His character. He is not an agent of sin, certainly not. But let's go toward the rest of the chapter here and finish it up. For through the, Paul, the law, Paul says he died the law. That's a good one. Formerly the law was everything to Paul. He aggressively protected it. He's the one that supported Stephen's death. He's the one that imprisoned new Christians. He thought those who followed Jesus as Lord were grossly misled. That Jesus was a misguided rabbi or maybe worse. Alistair Begg describes it this way. Paul had once thought he was a spiritual millionaire. He thought he was advancing in holiness. Then one day it all changed. One day it all changed. In one journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, Paul came to realize he was spiritually bankrupt. That he wasn't even on the road to holiness. What gave Paul hope? On that journey, he met the risen, crucified Christ. Uh, he crucified Jesus, and he grasped the doctrine of justification. That God declares the sinner to be righteous, to be righteous on the basis of his son's finished work. Far from being a ladder, God's law is more like a mirror that shows us that we are wrong and we can't put ourselves in the right. While striving to keep the law, Paul learned he was failing. Jesus pointed it out to him on that Damascus road. Paul thought he was climbing a ladder of righteousness to God, but instead he was kicking against the goads, as they say in King James. He was fruitlessly um, and stubbornly resisting God's power. He was vainly raging against the God who was calling him. God stopped Paul in his tracks, and Paul realized his vain works and obstinance against God. And he responded to the gospel and began following Christ. He increasingly realized the law had become dead in his life. It was no ladder to heaven. It should have no influence in him. It was no grounds for justification. He became dead to it as a dead person's insensible to all else around him. At one time, pursuit of purity in the law was what he was driven to do. That was his goal. No longer. He ceased to observe the law as grounds for justification. He had a higher purpose than that. He wanted to fully live for God and for the Lord who had died for him and rose again. He was crucified with Christ, which he explains even more in Romans 6. For if we've been united with him in a death like him, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For if we died with Christ, we believe we should also live with him. That's the picture of baptism. If you haven't been baptized, consider it. The picture of baptism is we are being buried. We're drowning our old self. And that sinful nature is then buried with Christ. Paul finishes out in 
chapter 6, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's old self, his sinful nature, was crucified. It died. It no longer had sway in his life. Through the Holy Spirit, Paul was no longer directing his life. Christ was directing him. Paul was dead. The old Paul was dead, but the new Paul was alive in spirit, alive in Christ, living in faith, grasping tightly to Jesus. And Paul was not about to nullify the grace of God that was given to him by submitting again to the law and works. As he said, for if salvation by grace was based on faith but obedience to the law and not Christ's death and resurrection, why in the wide world did Christ come and why did he need to die? There's some other way. If my work can earn my salvation, Paul says, then Christ's death was unnecessary. But of course, the reality is that our works are flawed, our motivations are self-centered, and we cannot earn our salvation. So like Paul, we should gladly and gratefully receive God's grace and celebrate what Christ has done. Joyously, by grasping on to Christ's finished work on the cross and the power of his resurrection, we know life eternal which is the last point. We can walk in ways that bring honor or dishonor to God. We can, it can affirm His grace or it can tarnish it. It can magnify Christ or it can minimize Him. May our lives never presume upon the grace of God that we can send because He'll give us salvation. May we not set our grace, may not set His grace aside and nullify His grace by trusting anything else for our salvation. Christ calls us to deny ourselves, to drown our Adamic nature and to faithfully follow him. And if by faith we've tightly grasped Christ, we have his spirit within us, the spirit that guides and teaches and comforts us and maybe most importantly, powerfully enables us to faithfully follow Christ. But if we've not grasped firmly to Christ, if anyone here has not grasped firmly to Christ today. I pray this would be the day you would do that. You talk to me or Darren or one of the elders or community group leaders. Get this straightened out because it's so important. Today I pray we can all affirm that it's no longer we who live but Christ who lives within us. And the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray.